It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. On May 23, 1815, King Ferdinand IV marched into Naples, Italy, to reclaim his rightful throne. For the past decade, he'd been living in exile, driven out by Napoleon Bonaparte's inexorable European conquest. Now, Napoleon had finally been defeated. Nobody could stop King Ferdinand from returning to his kingdom. But even though the monarchy had been restored, the values of the French Revolution still lingered in Naples. Belief in liberty, equality, and fraternity had been kept aflame by a secret society called the Carbonari. As King Ferdinand paraded down the streets of his city, he had no idea that the faces staring back at him were planning his downfall. Tens of thousands of men were resolved to do whatever it took to ensure they lived in a free and just society and they wouldn't stop fighting until they did. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Black Hand to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Carbonari, an Italian organization that fought against absolute monarchy during the early 1800s. This week, we'll explore how the French Revolution changed the political landscape in Europe and led to the Carbonari's formation. We'll also cover the group's secret practices and rituals. Next week, we'll track the Carbonari's efforts to turn their vision for revolution into a reality and see how their beliefs reverberated throughout history. Unlike other secret societies who relied on the influence of a handful of powerful elites, the Carbonari's strength came from the masses, from the everyman. Contemporary accounts estimate the Carbonari's membership at nearly 300,000 people in 1820, and that was only within the kingdoms of Naples and Sicily. 
While this figure may have been exaggerated, it reflects a pervasive belief of the time. Anyone from the lowliest farmer to richest noble could be a carbonari, and that's what made them so dangerous to Europe's established monarchies. Under monarchy rule, a king or queen's authority derived from a single source, God. But the Carbonari wanted to change that. Taking inspiration from the French Jacobins, they wanted to install a constitutional model in which the leader was beholden to the people and not the other way around. With thousands of members from varied social classes, the Carbonari truly represented the will of the people. But even with so many in their ranks, the Carbonari had to lurk in the shadows, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. Because as previous efforts at overthrowing the monarchy had taught them, revolution was a dangerous business, especially in early 19th century Europe. If they were going to succeed, they needed to inspire a true popular movement, one like the 1789 French Revolution. That year, long-simmering tensions in France finally came to a boil. Twenty years of poor harvests, combined with reckless spending from the crown, had created an unbridgeable chasm between the French monarchy and its starving people. Until that point, the king of France, along with most of Europe's monarchs, ruled by the mandate of divine right. With God granting them absolute authority, who were the common people to question their ruler's judgment? But in 1789, that illusion was finally dispelled when the French people took matters into their own hands. After overthrowing King Louis XVI, they executed him on January 21, 1793. His death set the stage for other revolutions around Europe. With King Louis's head in a breadbasket, the status quo was seriously under threat. If the ideals of the French Revolution were allowed to spread, then who knew which European power could be the next to fall? One of these concerned monarchs was King Ferdinand IV of Naples, Italy. In an attempt to defend his divine sovereignty, King Ferdinand launched an attack against the French in August of 1793. The move backfired spectacularly. Ferdinand was trounced by the French army under the direction of a young upstart commander named Napoleon Bonaparte. It was the launch pad for Napoleon's career. Following the battle, he began to conquer Europe's monarchies one by one. By the winter of 1798, he came for Ferdinand's Neapolitan kingdom. Seeing that his defeat was imminent, King Ferdinand boarded a ship on December 22, 1798, and hightailed it out of the city. Naples was without a leader. In his absence, the Neapolitan aristocracy took control. While they were still members of the nobility, they rejected absolute monarchy. Instead, they formed a committee to oversee the kingdom's day-to-day -day activities. To help secure their new position of authority, the ruling committee started negotiating with the conquering French. They invited the army into the city. The commoners, known as the Lazzaroni, were decidedly against this arrangement. After the nobles' committee took control of the city's fortresses with the help of the French, 
the Lazzaroni took to the streets. Although it may seem like the city's poorest people were supporting the oppressive King Ferdinand, the Lazzaroni weren't necessarily rioting in favor of their deposed monarch. Rather, they were protesting against a foreign invader, even if they came promising freedom. As one envoy observed, the people appear to be violently anti-French. In the end, the commoner's dissent proved fruitless. Three days after the riots, on January 22, 1799, the Neapolitan Republic was officially declared. The monarchy in Naples was no more. It should have been a momentous victory, but the young republic was immediately plagued by problems. The Lazzaroni continued to reject the ruling committee. This unrest spread to the outlying towns and settlements. Rumors of civil war started to circulate. In addition, Naples was essentially bankrupt. When King Ferdinand fled the city, he took all the money in the city's banks with him. With no money on hand, food prices skyrocketed. Bread lines formed in the streets. The Lazzaroni just added it to their long list of grievances. The French hadn't liberated them. They'd simply tossed them out of the pan and into the fire. Even worse, the French levied a massive fee for their services to the ruling Republican committee. With all the money gone from the banks, that debt couldn't be repaid. To make sure it got its money, the French government took more control over the Neapolitan Republic's affairs. All of a sudden, the people weren't ruling themselves. They had only traded one absolute ruler for another. As the provisional government struggled to win over the Lazzaroni and chafed under French oversight, King Ferdinand recruited allies to retake Naples. Russian and Austrian forces came from the north, an Italian army encroached from the south, and English ships came from the sea. The French didn't have the numbers. They abandoned Naples in April 1799, leaving the ill-equipped republic to fend for itself. With the help of his allies, King Ferdinand returned to Naples in July of 1799. The Neapolitan Republic was dead after barely six months of existence. Determined to punish those who had dared to replace him, Ferdinand had 3,818 people arrested for unlawful rebellion. Nearly all were found guilty. 216 of them were executed. But rather than killing them all at once, Ferdinand preferred to draw it out over several months. The public executioner was working until September of 1800. Those who survived what became known as the Royal Terror would not forget this dark period. The commoners resented the French for ruining their land, and the Republicans resented Ferdinand for the brutal tactics he employed upon his return. But as bad as things had been over the past few months, having to resubmit to Ferdinand's iron-fisted rule was worse. Though they had been bent, those who believed in self-governance had not been broken. Many Neapolitans who had gone through the revolution of 1799 resolved that the next time they got their chance, the government they shaped would be of their own making. The process would take years, but by the time they were ready to strike, they would have hundreds of thousands of voices 
acting as one. Coming up, a new secret society takes shape. Now, back to the story. In 1799, King Ferdinand IV brutally put down a nascent constitutional republic in Naples, Italy. But it wasn't long until Ferdinand's kingdom was once again threatened. In 1804, Napoleon Bonaparte coronated himself as the Emperor of France. As he had done in the late 1790s, he turned his dynastic ambitions toward Italy and the Neapolitan Kingdom. He wasn't the only one repeating history. When Napoleon's army approached Naples, King Ferdinand again chose to flee rather than defend his lands. Naples was quickly absorbed into Napoleon's expanding empire. With so many vassal states and military campaigns to oversee, Napoleon didn't have the time to rule Naples himself. Instead, he crowned his brother-in-law, Joachim Murat, as the King of Naples on March 30, 1808. Upon taking the throne, Murat promised to eradicate the feudal system that Ferdinand and other monarchs had profited from for centuries. In its place, he installed the Napoleonic Code, a merit-based system in which even the lowliest citizen could attain success. As the son of a humble innkeeper, Murat was living proof that anyone could thrive under his new regime. But the memories of 1799 were still fresh in the minds of the people of Naples. Without a legal constitution guaranteeing these new freedoms, there was nothing stopping Murat from reversing all the changes he made. It didn't matter what their new king promised. He wasn't a Neapolitan, and outsiders couldn't be trusted. Getting Murat to agree to a constitution wasn't going to be easy. Though he didn't seem to be a despot, the experiences of 1799 had shown the people of Naples that heads tended to roll when a king's power was threatened. These new revolutionaries would have to operate in the shadows while they built the momentum they needed. If there were enough of them calling for change, Murat would have no choice but to listen. To that end, a secret society called the Carbonari appeared in Naples, sometime between 1807 and 1810. Like with many secret societies, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when and how the Carbonari came to be, because their formation was shrouded in conflicting narratives and misinformation. The group has several origin stories, and they all revolve around people fighting for justice against powerful foes. Named after the Italian word for charcoal burners, the Carbonari traced their beginnings to a society of medieval German woodsmen who banded together to fight outlaws and bandits. Or at least, so says the 1821 memoirs of the secret societies of the south of Italy. But according to a French book from 1815, the Carbonari were actually founded by Francis I, King of France from 1515 to 1547. As this legend goes, Francis was hunting near Scotland when he was separated from his party. As he stumbled through the dark woods, he came across a secret society of freedom fighters who had rebelled against Isabella, Duchess of Brittany. 
Styling themselves as charcoal burners, these exiles communicated their plans to overthrow Isabella through coded greetings and messages. Impressed by their hospitality and discipline, King Francis asked to be inducted into their ranks. Upon returning to France, he anointed himself as the protector of the Carbonari and vowed to expand their fraternity. However, yet another founding myth of the Carbonari goes even further back, all the way to 340 BCE, during the rule of Philip of Macedon. As he expanded his empire, Philip battled a Boeotian general named Philomel. Unwilling to accept Philip's rule, Philomel assembled a small but determined army to resist the Macedonians. Despite the overwhelming odds against him, Philomel refused to yield. Even once his army was defeated, he and a small band of soldiers continued to engage Philip's army. To keep their activities secret, Philomel and his men communicated in secret languages and codes. Most likely, none of these three stories were the actual basis for the Carbonari. Most historians agree that this secret order was an offshoot of the Freemasons, a prominent fraternal society whose members have been associated with affecting global politics. But these more epic origin stories illustrate the founding principle behind the Carbonari, to fight tyranny no matter the odds. Certainly, facing Napoleon's seemingly insurmountable empire would have seemed like a tall task. By connecting their heritage to such illustrious historical freedom fighters, the Carbonari would have been able to keep hope alive even when the circumstances seemed hopeless. However, simply tracing their origins to heroes of the past wasn't enough for the Carbonari to achieve their goals. To have any chance of installing their own vision of government, they needed the most important element of a secret society, members. The question was what kind of people they wanted to recruit, but unlike groups like the Freemasons, the Carbonari didn't cater to the elites. One of the hard lessons they had learned from the failed Neapolitan Revolution was that they needed the support of the masses. In 1799, the Republicans had relied on the city's elites to establish the new government. But with the commoners resisting them at every step, it had been nearly impossible to gain any traction. To that end, the barrier for entry into the Carbonari was extremely low. According to historian R. John Rath, the only people excluded from membership were immoral persons, men accused of infamous crimes, those who had the reputation of being weak in spirit or character, and people who had antisocial and anti-liberal views. Essentially, the Carbonari wanted morally upright people who were dedicated to ridding Naples of tyranny and foreign rule. Whether that person was a noble, a merchant, or a street urchin didn't matter. They just needed to be committed to the cause and know how to keep a secret. The Carbonari's recruiting methods proved so effective that some historians place their peak numbers at 300,000 members. But having so many people join was both a blessing and a curse. While it provided a strong base to push the Carbonari's ideals, it also came with a higher risk that the group's secrets would be revealed. 
To keep their plan secure, the Carbonari divided their membership into two classes, apprentices and masters. Just like any normal trade, apprentice Carbonari had to learn the basics of their craft before being trusted with more responsibility. But unlike tradesmen, they weren't learning how to make horseshoes or construct barrels. They were being taught the essentials of revolution. Considering the serious nature of the Carbonari's goals, an apprentice's initiation was a solemn, serious affair. The ceremony was held at a Carbonari lodge, known as the Baraka. In keeping with the society's accessible nature, the Baraka was styled after a charcoal burner's woodshop within the forest. On the night of their initiation, new members were instructed to sit on a so-called trunk within the forest. They were told to spend time in this grotto of reflection, to think about why they wanted to join the Carbonari. Then they were blindfolded and led to the workshop's entrance. According to R. John Rath, a new member explained upon demand that he had been carrying wood, leaves, and earth in the forest in order to kindle a fire in and cook on the furnace that he was bringing faith, hope, and charity, and that he wanted to enter the chamber to conquer his passions and to be instructed about the duties of the Carbonari. From there, the initiate was led through fire, which symbolized the flame of charity. Details on this part of the ceremony are scarce. It could have been a proverbial fire of some sort, or even a small fire that the apprentice had to leap over. Whatever form it took, the flame of charity stood for virtue which was only attainable through good works, as guided by reason. But then, the prospective apprentice was introduced to the Carbonari's dark side. After pledging himself to their ranks, the masters watching the ceremony would strike blocks of wood with hatchets. Finally, the initiate's blindfold was removed. As he adjusted his eyes to the dim surroundings, the Grand Master presiding over the ceremony told him that if he ever betrayed his new brothers, the hatches he had heard would be used to fell him from the Carbonari's forest. But as long as he stayed true, they would be taken up in his defense. With that, the apprentice was inducted into the Carbonari. As a token of his membership, he was given a ceremonial fragment of wood. Like the new apprentice, it was raw and fresh. But within the wood and apprentice alike lay infinite potential. Under the transformative power of fire, the wood could become charcoal, capable of unleashing incredible energy. Similarly, an apprentice who went through the fire of revolution would help fuel the energy of a new world. They also taught new apprentices how to recognize other members, showing the Carbonari salute. The arms were extended at one side, fists clenched. Additionally, apprentices greeted each other with a secret handshake in which the greeter placed his right middle finger on a fellow initiate's right thumb. This way, even if someone claimed to be brand new to the organization, other members had a clear way to determine the truth. After a minimum six-month learning period, an apprentice could become a master, provided he'd been deemed worthy of more responsibility. Unfortunately, not enough documentation has been preserved to know exactly how many grades of master existed. 
However, we know there were at least two, and maybe as many as nine. As an apprentice moved up through the ranks, he was trusted with more information regarding the Carbonari's ultimate goal. But exactly what that was is difficult to say. Because with so many members, the Carbonari couldn't agree on a concrete vision for the Neapolitan kingdom's future. Generally, their aim was to bring political and social independence to Italy and expel foreign rulers and tyrants. But exactly what Naples would look like once that was achieved was uncertain. Many of the Carbonari wanted some form of constitutional government, although it's difficult to know exactly how many of them supported this vision. Considering that the society sprung up in the aftermath of the 1799 revolution, it makes sense that the Carbonari would want a system similar to the one the Neapolitan Republic had tried to establish. However, not all of the members were so ambitious. Some of the more conservative Carbonari were willing to accept a limited monarchy, as long as there was some way for the people to check the ruler's power. But in 1812, developments in Spain gave the Carbonari a blueprint for establishing a constitutional government that all their members could support. Like Naples, Spain was part of Napoleon Bonaparte's empire. Its traditional king, also named Ferdinand, had been replaced by Napoleon's brother, Joseph. However, by March of 1812, the French empire was beginning to weaken. Pushing back against Joseph Bonaparte's unwanted rule, the Spanish National Assembly ratified the Constitution of Cadiz. Although the monarchy was preserved, it was much more limited than before. The king could veto bills that the assembly passed, but he could only do it three times per law before he was overruled. Furthermore, the Constitution guaranteed the freedom of the press, outlawed arbitrary arrests, and enforced property rights. Additionally, municipal offices were attained via election rather than royal appointment. This constitution showed the Carbonari that it was possible to enact the policies they wanted. And as the French Empire came under fire, an unexpected event gave the Carbonari the opportunity to achieve their vision in Naples. In January of 1814, the acting king of Naples Joachim Murat betrayed his brother-in-law, Napoleon Bonaparte. Coming up, the Carbonari make their push for a constitutional government. Now, back to the story. In 1808, Napoleon Bonaparte crowned his brother-in-law, Joachim Murat, king of Naples, Italy, but despite their family ties, the two men frequently clashed. Suspicious that Murat was trying to foment rebellion against him, Napoleon eventually stripped him of many military responsibilities. The slight didn't go unnoticed. Although Murat stayed loyal to Napoleon for a few years, by late 1813, he was considering changing sides. That October, Napoleon lost a major battle against the Austrians in Leipzig. Sensing the tide was turning, Murat turned on his brother-in-law. In January of 1814, he accepted an armistice agreement with Austria and England. Murat promised not to fight his new allies, even if Napoleon continued to attack them. 
His defection was beneficial to the Carbonari in two ways. First, it was the chance to throw off the yoke of French occupation. Even though Murat wasn't a native Italian, he was dedicated to independent rule. Second, it was the perfect opportunity to pressure Murat to adopt a legal constitution. His top generals were all Neapolitans. Although we don't know for sure if they were Carbonari, they did support enacting a constitution. Notably, General Florestano Pepe formally petitioned Murat to grant a constitution during the January campaign. However, Murat refused. But the Carbonari weren't content to take no for an answer. In March of 1814, a pro-Republican revolt sprang up north of Naples. Convinced that the Carbonari were behind it, the government declared the secret society an enemy of the state. Murat sent General Pepe to put down the revolt. It was a grave miscalculation. Pepe, who had already petitioned for a constitution, sided with the Republicans and, by extension, the Carbonari. Realizing that things were getting out of control, Murat returned to Naples in May to personally handle the situation. To calm his agitated citizens, he lowered taxes and ended forced conscription into the army. Yet he still refused to enact a constitution. Rather than listening to the people's will, Murat rounded up suspected Carbonari and threw them in jail. Executions started that July. With Murat cracking down on them, it seemed like the Carbonari's wish for a constitution would never be granted. Making matters worse, he returned to Napoleon's side after the French emperor escaped from exile in March of 1815. For all intents and purposes, the dream of an independent Italian republic was dead. But Murat's former allies were determined to punish him for re-siding with Napoleon. The Austrian army marched on Naples, and English frigates blockaded the bay. Left with no choice, Murat fled the city on May 20th, 1815. The day after Murat's flight, King Ferdinand IV of Naples returned to claim his throne after nearly 10 years away. But there was optimism within the Carbonari that Ferdinand might be receptive to installing a constitution. There was precedence now. During his decade away from Naples, Ferdinand agreed to a constitution in his other kingdom of Sicily. When he reclaimed Naples in 1815, the Carbonari were hopeful that Ferdinand would bring the Sicilian constitution with him. Instead, he abolished it and reestablished autocratic rule over both kingdoms. But this about-face wasn't solely Ferdinand's decision. He had only been able to reclaim the Neapolitan throne because his Austrian allies let him. According to historian John A. Davis, the Austrians were vehemently opposed to the Sicilian constitution. Their monarch was part of the Habsburg dynasty, one of the oldest in Europe. The Habsburgs had ruled by divine right for generations. They weren't about to answer to a constitution, and neither would their allies. 
When the Austrians signed a treaty with Ferdinand in July of 1815, it came with the strict stipulation that he wouldn't enact any policy that wasn't compatible with the political institutions of the Austrian monarchy. As such, any forms of a constitution were forbidden, and Republican groups such as the Carbonari had to be dealt with harshly. In 1816, Ferdinand's government formally banned Carbonari lodges. However, that was easier said than done. By that point, there was an estimated 50,000 Carbonari in the Calabria region alone. For reference, that's the toe section in the Italian boot. Even if this number was exaggerated, the Carbonari were too widespread to be easily eradicated. But that didn't mean the Neapolitan government and other Italian monarchists weren't going to try. On November 25, 1816, five suspected Carbonari were arrested and executed in the Papal States north of Naples. It was one of the first exchanges in what was about to become a brutal conflict. Although the five men were but a drop of water in the ocean of Carbonari, their violent deaths sent a chilling message. Without a central authority to guide them, the threat could have scattered the Carbonari to the winds. But instead of breaking them apart, the November 25th executions only made the Carbonari stronger. Sometime in 1817, two Carbonari named Rosario Macchiaroli and Pietro Serra decided to finally unite their diffuse organization with a single dedicated vision. Sending messages to the various branches throughout the Neapolitan kingdom, they organized an unprecedented meeting with the other Carbonari leaders. The various representatives gathered in Pompeii. Looking over the Bay of Naples, this ancient Roman city had been destroyed when Mount Vesuvius unexpectedly erupted in 79 BCE. And now, another fire would emerge from Pompeii, one of revolution. After some debate, Machiaroli and Sarah were able to convince the other leaders that they all had to adopt a single platform. And after meeting again in January of 1818, they agreed to base the Carbonari's constitution after the Spanish constitution of Cadiz. Although the monarchy would be allowed to continue, it would be in limited fashion. Democratically elected assemblies would keep the king in check. These bodies would have control over appointing magistrates, running the army, and ensuring the freedom of speech and religion. In order to achieve this program, the Carbonarist leaders had to send a powerful message. They had to show that the desire for a constitution wasn't limited to a few isolated voices. It had to be thousands of people shouting out as one. They decided the most effective way to send their message was to organize simultaneous revolts in the cities of Naples, Salerno, Foggia, and Bari. But before these demonstrations could be organized, King Ferdinand caught wind of the Carbonari's plans. In an attempt to nip this growing movement in the bud, Ferdinand sent his generals across the kingdom to make arrests. All told, they rounded up over 200 suspected Carbonari. However, this action did little to deter the Carbonari's cause. Now that they had a united front, 
It didn't matter if the king's men arrested 200 carbonari or 2,000. Even still, the planned revolts had to be scrapped. Even though many soldiers in Ferdinand's army were carbonari, the arrests proved that the king still had men loyal enough to round up his enemies. Before the carbonari could strike, they had to win more soldiers to their cause. They started infiltrating the Neapolitan army, recruiting them as new apprentices. Soon, Ferdinand's battalion would have enough carbonari within its ranks to set the revolution in motion. And thanks to shocking events elsewhere on the continent, the Carbonari's dream of a constitution was about to be realized. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with part two of the Carbonari. We'll see the society's vision come to life and the bloody reaction that followed. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.